Hello, and welcome to Theories of Change, a podcast about climate change and the various strategies and approaches to addressing this global challenge. I'm your host, Sarah Ladislaw. Twice a month, we'll talk with experts about how to affect the kind of change needed to bring about a more manageable climate for future generations. We'll talk with people from all walks of life who sometimes approach climate change from very different angles. So many things will happen already. The question is the speed of the change and the disconnect in a way between the politics of climate change and the real economy evolution. Laurence, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm very happy to have this opportunity across the Atlantic to talk. Wonderful. So, Laurence, you are the CEO of the European Climate Foundation. You've also had a long history of working on climate change issues, not least of which was as the climate change ambassador and special representative for COP21, which makes you a very large part of knowing the history and the record of success of the Paris Climate Agreement. Many of our listeners may not know what the European Climate Foundation is. So before we start the conversation, would you mind just telling us a little bit about what your organization does? Yeah, with a lot of pleasure. When I stepped down from government, from my ambassadorship, I decided to go to more civil society. I felt at that moment in time, because the negotiations were over, that something like action was very needed. And I felt that working in the civil society, talking to many different stakeholders was the right place to be. And that, again, for me, Paris Agreement is not about government only. It's about all society uh, sharing the same goals and trying to take responsibility. And this European Climate Foundation is one of the foundations at global levels that is trying to do its best to put climate on the agenda, of course, mainly at European level, both for European institutions, but in the member states as well, throughout the government. It's a foundation that fund NGOs, but that fund as well, try to develop inside discussion with government, with businesses, with uh, local authorities. And the ECF, the European Climate Foundation, has developed as well a program. And of course, when I came in, because the foundation exists not like most than 10 years now already, when I came in, of course, I brought the international dimension to it. So understanding that Europe, in a way, is the only one, in particular after the decision of the Trump administration to withdraw from the Paris Agreement, to really bear the torch of the multilateralism for climate and that EU outreach was very central. So we have developed on top of the European classical programs to push climate everywhere where we can in national policies and at European level, to push as well the diplomacy of Europe to really maintain the demand for having climate very high on the political agenda. It's about a foundation who spend uh, 80 million a year in supporting different organizations, independent, and with a range of activities from litigation, dialogues to studies and analysis and support to campaigns. That's great. And we'll talk a little bit more about how you think the conversation and the politics of climate change has really changed in Europe over the course of your tenure at the European Climate Foundation and since the Paris Climate Agreement. But everyone we have on theories of change, we start with the same question, which is fundamentally about how you characterize the issue of climate change in your own work. It's such a pervasive issue. Many people come at it from a technological or a societal or a political perspective. How do you think about the challenge writ large? As a global common and as a, in a way, a challenge that 
affect or impact our development models, the way we produce, the way we consume, the way we travel, the way we produce our food even, or or we eat. I think all angles are good in a way. And it's as good that now many, many people are taking care, concerned about, worried. But you see that this is about a transformational change. It's a very radical change, if I may say so. Again, if we want to be net zero emission by 2050, which is a Paris goal, we have, for example, to electrify most of the consumption of our energy and then to decarbonize that electricity. This means major changes in the way we live. Not really because we will go and not travel or not contract the economy, but the fundamental of this economy will be pretty different. We have been two centuries and even a little more than that living on fossil fuels and now we have to build a new system. So because of this radical change perspective, we need the whole societies with of course approval because they are all different, embarking in that direction. And that's why the social dimension of it, the impression that there is both behaviors, both in a way justice, both in a way capacity and ownership on citizen, this goes along with the more traditional politics and the more traditional economic thinking. So, of course, it's a little bit overwhelming, but I do think now, because the public opinion is now much more concerned, I see the polls now, and even US, Europe, but many other countries on the globe are concerned about the impacts and the need to respond to climate challenge. So there is a capacity to, in a way, embark if in this new vision of our development, our well-being, but it has to be based not only on top-down decision-making. It has to come with a democracy. It has to come with really people embarking, thinking, being informed to embrace that change. So, in a way, now more I advance and more I see this as very intersectional, interconnected issue. You mentioned it is an overwhelming challenge because of the scope and scale of the change. How do you feel that we are doing relative to the challenge? Do you think we're ahead in some ways, behind in others? Yeah, it's a very mixed picture. Globally, when you look at emission, we are not going well, of course. And on the other side, all the modeling on the climate science is producing is now more pessimistic about the speed in which the climate is changing compared to previous scenarios. So the news from the scientists are, are never better off as they are always more concerned and more, in a way, more gloomy about uh, the speed of the change that is happening. And on the other side, of course, the uh, global emissions are still rising. So I see now more and more, of course, uh, incipient movement in the real economy of the shift. We see that in the energy system where you see that now more and more renewable energy is coming in in the energy mix. We see that the reflection of, for example, of land use and agriculture, which was something nobody was thinking really seriously about. We see that now electrification of transport is now is not even battle to win. It will happen. So many things will happen already. The question is the speed of the change and the disconnect in a way between the politics of climate change and the real economy evolution. On the politics, unfortunately, the decision of Trump has led to a sort of domino effect, like in many domains of the international relations. And so this domino effect has, in a way, allowed space or given space to 
reluctant government in a way to step back or even not to withdraw. No country finally has withdrawn from Paris agreements beyond the US. But you see the Australian, the Brazilians, even Mexico, some others are much more quiet in their domestic policy, if not against any effort. And that's what you see, for example, Australia saying, anyway, we will meet our global commitment without doing nothing because, in a way, with, depending on the technical evaluation. But So the U.S. president has opened a field where the ones, the naysayers, or the ones who don't want to do it, have a space to develop that. That's why G20 meetings or even G7 meetings, it's, of course, much more obvious in the G20 meetings. The U.S. is covering uh, all many, many governments that doesn't want to go ahead. On the other side, on the real economy, on the finance, for example, you see deep evolution happening. You see that now it's more and more difficult to fund a new coal power plant. You see that uh, Exxon, for example, the company has stepped down while they are no more in the Dow Jones index. So you see this evolution on the fossil fuel industry, which is now perceived as a risky business as was said many years now ago. You see that, again, the fossil fuel activities related are now much less felt as profitable. You see that the companies who are doing really seriously the job are rewarded by their profitability. And you see that the number of local authorities in particular are embarking on very radical plans, for example, on mobility in cities, just the development of bikes and electric mobility in cities is really booming. So you see the real economy is pushing on one side, whereas you don't see reflected in the political, in particular at international level. So that's why, of course, in the 2016-17, I was looking at the dynamic between EU and China, but for many reasons, the Chinese government is now much more cautious about taking strong commitments or very ambitious commitments in particular, revising its contribution for that for this year. And because, of course, they are concerned about the economic crisis, concerned about what's best for the Chinese economy, and certainly a very vivid discussion in China around that, around the future. And so that's why the domino effect of U.S. position has been quite stronger and uh, than I would have hoped if not expected, and that's why the result of the U.S. election would be so central to rebuild the political momentum at global level. But anyway, even with this, of course, the economy anyway is moving in the right direction, but it's too slow. That's why we need political momentum. Yeah. I want to talk about the opportunity or as some might see it, the lack of opportunity that might come from the moment in time where we have another crisis, which is obviously COVID-19. Some people are taking away from this experience that global health uh, crisis, a pandemic, should have elicited a lot of global cooperation to deal with another global commons issue, which is trying to stem the tide of a you know a global pandemic together. And that's been a very mixed record. On the other hand, you have some very influential global organizations like the UN, like the International Energy Agency, all calling for using the COVID-19 crisis as an opportunity to build uh, a greener future. How do you think about COVID-19 and the responses to it that we've seen so far? Where do you see progress? Were you surprised by the lack of progress? The response to COVID-19 is very interesting to look at. And when it started, in particular, if I remember at the beginning of this year, 
January and, and February were months where basically the response was utterly nationalistic. We saw the first response of government, and if I look at my region and Europe, where exactly everyone for its own country, lack of information, lack of transparency, everyone fighting for the medical equipment needed. But then from a sudden, and I think it happened in like end of February, March, there was a wake-up call that we can't just continue like this because that said there's a no-go there. And even if you had still this perception of it can be a tool, COVID-19 response can be a tool for diplomacy. We heard about, of course, of the mask diplomacy from China, uh, but that the necessity in a way to cooperate was very, very strong. And uh, from a certain, at least at European level, but as well as, so the bad reaction of the beginnings turned to something much more cooperative. For example, so the reaction on the problem of the indebtedness of less developed countries was finally the response was quite quick to say we can't let this go. So it's a lesson, meaning when the risk of the perception of the impact is real, even if that the first reaction is let's try to solve it by ourselves and defend our own citizens very, very quickly, the recognition of the impasse is really there. And so, in a way, if we withdraw the lesson for climate change, and then I will come back to the recovery opportunity, you see that the main problem for climate and why it's not producing the same, in a way, yes, maybe nationality reaction, of course, we want to develop whatever happens. We need to develop a model cooperatively at global levels that allow for humanity to survive. It's because it's still perceived as long-term and distant and where COVID was here and there. And, you know, it took time. It took almost two months to realize that it's here and there. It's not somewhere else. So the work I think we have to do is really to make evident that climate change is here and there. On the recovery, of course, many institutions, in particular Antonio Guterres, have been really, really vocal and sometimes I think I would love to see much more support from him from many governments because he had designed the right way to respond to the economic crisis and the social crisis which is happening now. And yes, it's a fantastic opportunity because the amount of money, the public investment, the role of state and governments because of this crisis is really shifting from, in some cases, a really thin and very small government to big, big government and big public investment. And that will not come back easily after. So this amount of debt that we are creating to respond to COVID as a stimulus for the economy, of course, it's very important that this money is really well spent to accelerate the path to this trend that I was recognizing in the real economy. And that, of course, this game is not done and this battle has still to be fought because still there is an idea that at least we know how to push economic growth with traditional recipes and it's very difficult to believe that we can do things very very differently because we don't have time because you have all the lobbies working and because of not only vested interest but the inertia the lock-in syndrome is very very strong so just to shift from there and accept that we may delay, we may have more unemployment on the short term, just to create the new jobs is something that government perceive as very risky. Nevertheless, when I look at what citizens are thinking, 
I think there is a disconnect between what the citizen, at least if I look at Europe and the recent studies we, my foundation has funded, you see that the citizen understand that even if it takes time, even if it delays the economic response, we should respond to climate change because that's the best way to protect the future. And that, I don't think there is many, many governments that really not only say that because many are saying that, but that they believe in so deeply that they are decided just to make this very important shift. I wanted to ask you about that a little more, the role of citizens in particular, because you participated in a process that France launched for a citizens convention on climate, which was a way of directly soliciting ideas and support from a citizen assembly, by and large, to deal with climate change. And the the recommendations came out this past summer and just you know a week ago or so the french government has announced its own sort of recovery plan that is not just about making the economy whole again but also dealing with some of these ecological and environmental issues that were highlighted by the citizens assembly or the citizens climate convention can you talk about what that process brought to the table and whether you think that's a useful way for other governments to think about uh, engaging citizens or, or solving that disconnect that you just talked about between popular opinion and citizens evolving viewpoints on this issue and the way that governments often address these issues. In a way, my fascination for what has happened in a context where Europe was doomed to fail two or three years ago, with the view that the populist movement, nationalism would win, and that we were after Brexit or in the context of Brexit to really a, a total fragmentation of Europe. And uh, the Eastern countries looking at China, others looking elsewhere. And then something very important happened and that Brexit finally made people realize the value of this uh, political project that Europe is about, but of course was in disarray. And then the citizen unexpectedly came to vote for European election and young people went to vote. And when they voted, they voted with a pressure to have green transformation ecology in the programs. That's why even the conservative movement decided that the only way to have a sort of a backup for their, to the voters that have been voting for them was to put ecology, environment, climate change at the center of the compromise, which the Green Deal is about. And that was fascinating as a response to populism is something which is we get to a transformation that take in account a global common, what we have in common against nationalism. And that makes me uh, well, very hopeful of what you can bring constituencies together, even if there is identity politics playing, there are many things playing, but at the end of the day, the global commons can be the glue between very, very different political perspectives. Maybe to explain why Emmanuel Macron, the French president, decided to accept this idea that came from the civil society to have a convention of citizens on climate change, is because of the social crisis that happened a year before, with the Yellow Vest protesting against the rise on the carbon tax. The demands of the Yellow Vest, which were sometimes perceived as anti-ecological populist movement, which was wrong, really, at least it was a certain way of portraying that, were 
mostly about social justice. They felt that the rise on the carbon tax had more impact on the poor households. On the other side, there were sectors, economic sectors, that were not paying this carbon tax at all, like air transport, for example. Flights don't, don't pay tax on that matter, on the, on the emission they are producing. So we had a whole discussion in civil society to say, look, uh, that's not the way. We should not understand these social movements as anti-ecology, but more like they are asking something the government is not responding to, which was social justice. And so, of course, when you do a poll and when you ask people, would you be prepared to change your way of life or drive less or people in a survey would say no. But probably if you give them the information, the scope and the breadth of the problem and let them think and then let them be informed and absorb information and debate within each other, they may come with a very different view. And exactly, of course, we were. I was very confident that I accepted to co-chair the exercise with another colleague from academia. And the result was absolutely striking that the people who came there, 150 citizens, chosen really uh, randomly, really randomly. They didn't know anything. We didn't know them. Uh, there was, of course, a polling agency contacting them through phone, about 200,000 for to get the right sample of 150. 25% of these people didn't have any, any graduation, any diploma. They haven't sometimes not finished school, the elementary school even. Uh, you have, of course, old and young people. You have every profession represented, every region. And these people came without having any strong knowledge to the discussion. And the first day was really fascinating, where they were listening to some scientists that were explaining what was happening already and what would happen in the years to come because of climate change. The following day, they came back. I will remember all my life that they came back saying, why finally uh, the government haven't said that, that it was so bad. Of course, they heard about climate change, but they, in a distant way, not looking, these are the facts and taking the time to take the facts, which is not a preaching, a politician preaching about, oh, it's very big, it's a very big problem, but nevertheless, we can't do a lot or we will do something, but something, let's think about what it is. And then after that, you saw a whole discussion, it took, more than six months, seven months, actually, uh, just to reflect and learn. And they came with some very strong recommendations, one to change the constitution of France, to put the fight against climate change in the constitution as an obligation. In a way, on the policy level and the orientation of the economy, they said something very strong for a developed economy and uh, like France. And of course, probably could be very different, the exercise taking place in the U.S., but they say we should break the relation, the dependency, how society have with a private car, which, you know, it's about behavioral change. It's not about just a model in economic or say these companies should pay more than us. Of course, they said things which were more classical on the income distribution and the fairness of the tax system, etc. But they came with very strong ideas that we have to change the way we live and we have to go for a food that is mainly organic, mainly vegetarian, even if we don't want to impose anything on people, they have to make the choice themselves. But we have to break the dependency with a private car, which is 
an image of what the well-being and the progress is. No? So that was really incredibly strong. And the way they consider something that, you know, being a diplomat or an academic, I would don't consider that very important, but they wanted to regulate advertisement. They were saying, how we can change our behavior if on one side we are thinking about having really not using cars or buying very clean cars when, when at the same time we are bombarded by advertisements that SUV are the best way to look at the social status thing. So they said, just stop it. We can't make the change if there is no way of culturally the norm setting is not going in the right direction. So that was very powerful. I don't know if where the government, the French government would go on that side because of course there is a lot of opposition in regulating the other advisement. But I think it was fascinating to see if you make people think, if you let them think, then have this discussion, they would go very far. I'm fascinated by that exercise. Still, these people, we are all workers, they have work, they have, of course, some have pension, but most are, of course, working. They still work for six months, they spent eight weekends, so, so three days full together. They were working every week with seminars, were webinars, and they still are 135 working in the group. They have created a, an association just to follow so, you know, dynamic of citizen for me is a central piece. And I do think that if government could use that way of, in a way, getting some courage from their constituencies, I think that would be a major part of their capacity to operate. Well, one follow-up question from that, though, is how much of the advice that came from the Citizen Climate Convention is the French government uptaking, or is that still an open process? It's not done. The draft law has to be presented in around end of October. So we'll see exactly the scope of the response. And then we will have a meeting of the citizens, the last one, to respond to the government, to say, yes, we are happy, which was, I think, a condition, a very interesting condition, that they have the last word at the end. But you see that already it has given a sense of, I think, a good example. People were enthusiastic with railways in the Citizen Convention. The first reaction of the recovery plan, the emergency plan in March, April, and May in France lost somehow the 40, the 20 plus billion we are spent already before July. The railways were nowhere. Even if the public company uh, is suffering really from the crisis like any other company. And so when the citizen just gave them the, their advice, even the, in the midst of the process, and they say, well, the recovery should take care of the railways because that's something we really want to redevelop. And that now the government has accepted to put the railway system as part with the automotive, the support for aut- automobile and airlines. So that's the first inclination. And the second one was in a way to really do a big effort on infrastructure investment, in particular, and on refitting of building, which was, of course, a classical but very important recommendation from the citizen. Now, more things are open on how much the government will adopt a strong carbon budget that they will respect in line with the Paris goals, how much they would 
accelerate the electrification of transport, which is for the moment yes and no in a way, and how much condition would be put in exchange of this support to, to companies. So that is to be seen in a way, but at least uh, the message has been received that you can't do now policies and politics without taking ecology at the center. I want to pivot a little bit to something you said earlier, which is talking about the multilateral framework for dealing with climate change and certainly, you know, the context under which the U.S. has, under the current administration, chosen to pull back from that conversation. You had written about the need for EU-China leadership on the issue of climate change which obviously one of the big achievements in the Paris Climate Agreement was getting China to be a proactive member of that coalition that, you know, got that deal done. You, though, mentioned that, you know, it's been very hard for China to sustain that momentum, both in term because of, you know, the U.S. pulling back, but also because of the economic conditions we find ourselves in. How do you think that the EU and China could work together to drive either greater ambition or greater coherence in the multilateral climate uh, movement? Of course, the crisis doesn't help, that's for sure. Of course, without COVID-19, we would have seen a a preparation for the EU-China summit that would take place somewhere in November, December this year, a much more promising sort of space for cooperation even if climate change as such was not that high in the, you know, in the internal discussion. But there was a lot of, you know, China leadership, the China as a global power, which of course it's really the debate of the day in China as well. And the climate change is obviously, it could be one of the area where in particular because of their capacity to deploy renewable energy, electrification of uh, automotive sector and now hydrogen and many others that they they are really able technologically and to deploy that. Now the political context, of course, is tough for many political reasons, what happened in Hong Kong and other, and plus the trade war, even if it's a soft trade war, it's not a, a totally violent one when you look at really at the numbers. But the crisis on top of that I think the first reaction was for China to, in a way, come back to its fundamental, how we push back, we, in a way, we restart the economy. And for the moment, if I read the papers and what we see coming from China, the restart of the economy is still a supply side stimulus. And the demand response is not that high, which is, I think, the same issue in Europe, by the way where the recovery plans are all supply-side economics and not demand-side for the moment. So this is not facilitating anything. But at the same time, China is discovering a Europe that is much more united than they expected. Of course, a major reference for China on the global level and the major interlocutor still is probably U.S. Pre-crisis, you know, as this new commission, this new discussion on what the purpose of EU was Brexit, etc. And then the response to the crisis around the Green Deal and the new consensus built around that made Europe a sort of a different partner. And that's, of course, very obvious in the conversation that the president of the commission and the 
and the different head of state are having with China these days to prepare this summit is that whatever happens on the Chinese side, uh, Europe has decided to stand by the Green Deal, invest heavily in the green technology, invest heavily into the batteries and the automotive in the modernization of the economy in the green side to increase the EU commitment on emission reduction and go to another level, which is quite high, uh, going from 40% emission reduction related to 1990 by 2030 to go for minus 55%, which I think that will be agreed at least certainly before December. And so that whatever happens, EU will stand with its own policy and its own choices, and that it will go including on trade consequences. And you know how much the border tax adjustment is part of this conversation, which before, and the Chinese colleagues are aware of that. When my first time in China, I was in 2000, I think, the first discussion I had with colleagues, academia, government was, what about the relation between trade and climate? And uh, what about this border tax adjustment? And they believe, and at that time they were totally right, that there was no consensus in EU for that. But that has changed enormously because now the real economy on the green side is picking up and companies need level playing field. And so now these ideas that there will be trade impacts uh, make EU still the biggest market at global level for at least still a, a small number of years, certainly because, of course, all the regions are growing. So that's a big argument. So you have both, uh, you know, whether uh, the realistic argument in international relation playing together with the, of course, the interest-based and together with knowledge. And it's an interesting moment for the EU diplomacy where you can stick to you, we know that climate change is happening and there is a wide space for cooperation and we need to go all together with a, some kind of feeling of multilateral system. But at the same time, anyway, we would defend our interest to do that. So some kind of realism embedded. And that I think it's a good combination to talk to the Chinese, which of course can understand this combination as well. And so what I was explaining to some US colleagues recently in case U.S. come back, we'll have a totally different geopolitics around climate change, not only because U.S. will be back, but because we will have U.S. being back with a Europe very, very determined to go in, in a particular direction, which is not, that was not the case in the meantime Obama administration. And so that's a very new factor. So that's why I, I think we will see. Uh, let's see what happens. Let's see what is the orientation of the United States but the game will be particularly different because of this triangle, which, of course, EU will never be an hegemonic power in the military or sense. But certainly the norm setting is higher than ever. Absolutely. One of the you know difficult things right now in the world because of all the complications of different geopolitical factors, all of the crises that we face on a number of different levels, whether it's the ecological ones or the inequality ones or the security ones or the trade ones that you've talked about is 
trying to gauge what the aspiration could be for multilateral climate cooperation. And, you know, you had written in one of your articles this idea that people have been batting around about a new Bretton Woods system, a new system of rules of engagement that is, you know, fundamentally grounded in some of these broader economic concerns relative to when the first Bretton Woods engagement was created. Is that something that you think EU Chinese engagement or leadership could bring about in this context? Or do you think it's just more about sustaining momentum for domestic commitments that both the EU and China could convey and, you know, taking into account that the U.S. is still kind of an open question as to whether we'll be part of that dynamic at the federal level or not? On the short term, of course, building momentum is absolutely necessary and I think that's within reach of these governments, both from EU and China, I think. So the question of the system is, I think, is open already. No, are you, everybody is speaking about this necessity to reshape it. Once, because it was really based on to have peace and security, we need, of course, financial stability. We need a really big financial institution funding it. And we need trade to create peace between countries and development. So these factors have changed because we have many more global issues that were sec- totally secondary in terms of hierarchy in the UN system. And by the way, the main pillars, in particular, the financial stability piece plus the trade piece are just totally uh, redefined, no? Uh, where is a government that is uh, leading the financial stability? No one. And it's a combination of many, many elements to a point that you see economic crisis on one side and financial, you know, where success is at the same moment. So this part, of course, on the exchange rate, etc., is just now beyond reach of the sort of the system itself. But that's, the crisis is coming from now many, many years because, of course, of the dispute around the economic hegemony and the financial hegemony of the United States. But you see, not surprisingly, but coming as well, the crisis in the trade system, which well, you see now much more bilateral agreements than the multilateral ones. So anyway, this the fundamental of this post-Britain system are, of course, absolutely challenged with, and you put on top things you know by heart, Sarah, all the politics that are totally different, etc. At the same time, you see some global issues which seems not that, well, in a distance, like health, for example, where we have produced some patchy solution like, I don't know, Gavi or how you deal a little bit with malaria or what, how you deal with AIDS, but not a global solution. And people were just finding, well, we can have a very fragmented system, a sort of issue-based system around coalition of willing, etc. So that was a dominant feature of this governance of the last 15 years. I do think that is now, is interesting to see, and even that everyone will have his seat at the table, the business could develop a non-setting on their own, and uh, I think is characterized of this very messy discussion on global governance on these last 15 years. I see this coming to a little bit to an end, as you know, the concept of companies being on the side and developing their own norm setting is now, you see more and more business leaders saying, we need to 
have this discussion with a politician. We need a political solution because we can't go much further. And again, the DNA of this new governance, well, nobody knows what it's looked like, but China has a view of what the system would look like with what they call the Chinese characteristic, which they haven't totally defined. So the discussion on the system, in my view, is totally open. Certainly, of course, it's no more government only by definition. And the networks of the different actors has to find their role in there. That's why I think a soft power like EU can contribute a lot to the building of the new system. But I don't want to be idealistic, but I do think we'll see interesting dynamics. But probably together with a, a deep crisis of the UN system in a more explicit way, that in a way, finally, US has been driving it as well in the last three or four years. That's great. Lawrence, this has been a really wide ranging and fascinating discussion. I want to end with two questions that we always ask on theories of change here, because I'm particularly interested to get your thoughts, because you've dealt with so many people around the world with so many different perspectives on climate change. How do you approach talking to people that maybe have a different viewpoint from you on either the prioritization or the approach to how to deal with climate change. How do you talk to people about this issue who might have differing views? You know where I am, in a way, thankful to all the literature we use in an academic international relation is, you know, knowledge can do a lot in changing everyone's perspective or the perceived interest. I'm sure people work and work out of the, their perception and their representation of their own interest. And the problem of climate change is really bring back that problem back in their backyard. And that they feel that because of the knowledge you, you exchange, you share, you even understand their concerns and their particular constraints, they make them feel that it is really their problem as well. And that there is space to recognize their constraint and the need to share and solidarity. But at the same time, if they take the knowledge seriously, they see their interest in a totally different way. That's the way I, I promoted the negotiation on the Paris Agreement. And it sticks. It sticks. And I think there is no other way, really. You can't force people. Nobody will invade any country based on the climate policy. But if you gain the understanding that it's risky for their business, it's risky for their lives, it's risky for their livelihoods, they will make the change. That's why I insist so much on it cannot be government only. It has to be the involvement of citizens. And of course, it's easy working in France to call for a reform of our democracies. And in other political systems, the question is we have to think differently but the citizen ownership, the citizen voices, in my view, and because then climate change is close to their own vision, can change the vision of their own interests that governments are defending, the business are defending. But that, I think that's the only way. Again, many people have to do it. Of course, that cannot be one, one effort. Well, your focus on knowledge leads me directly into our last question, which is meant to help people who want to understand your perspective. What kind of resources might you recommend to other folks who are interested in what you look to for guiding your own views on, on climate change and uh, all the dimensions that go into it? 
I do think that now IPCC reports are better and better in capacity of communicating. And my own foundation, by the way, is really trying to support the institutions that are really uh, developing and offering resources. And there are very good now think tanks and resources where people can really inform themselves. And so very happy to help anybody who would like to connect with us. But you see now more and more newspapers, more and more magazines, more and more websites where there is really, really a very good level of information. So again, going maybe first to IPCC website, if you would like to have a scientific information, there are many books. Look, Losing Earth, who had been published in the US, I don't know, two years ago. You have now many people with their own language that can communicate. And that thing is really important that anyone's connect by affinity. Absolutely. Well, Lawrence, this has been a wonderful conversation. I always learn a lot by talking with you. We want to say thank you very much for taking your time to share your views today and joining us on Theories of Change. Thank you very much, Sarah. Always happy to exchange and uh, good luck for all what you do. Thank you.